I'm Doug Fern, and this is my take on music recording. John Castelli is a successful engineer, best known for his mixing ability. His recent credits include Grammy-nominated Talk by Khalid, a platinum hit by Summer Walker and Drake's Girls Need Love, and a gold record for Harry Styles' Lights Up. This episode is from a conversation I had with John about a year ago. We talked about many things, including his early experiences in the world of recording, those who mentored him along the way, the roles an engineer, producer, mixer plays, how he sets up a mix, fixing problems, mixing for a loudness goal, vocal recording and processing, and how technology can help or hinder the creative process. And John emphasizes that every engineer needs to develop his or her own sound. An edited version of our conversation was recently published in Tape Op magazine. We were talking for a while before we started recording, and the conversation starts with John's early experiences with music and recording. You know, your childhood growing up, I mean, were you from a musical family? Was music an important part of your life? I mean, how did you interact with music as a kid? It's really funny. Uh, I have a friend staying with me from New York right now, and about an hour ago, he actually asked me while I was setting up the microphone for this, are you from a musical family? And I would say I'm from a musical family in the sense that they're gigantic fans of music. I mean, my mother played violin when she was a, a kid, and my dad played the accordion when he was a kid but neither of them went on to pursue it. My brothers both played instruments when they were younger, but neither went to fully pursue it. My older brother still plays drums, I guess as a hobbyist, um, but I think I was kind of the odd one out, but always supported in music uh, by parents. I kind of wish that uh, I was told to play the piano as a kid though, versus picking um, a horn or wind instrument. Um, I think the piano would be a little bit more important to my career trajectory at the moment. Um, so I, I only can dabble on that. But I wound up picking up the saxophone early on and finding a, uh, a pretty deep love and connection for Charlie Parker and John Coltrane um, and the jazz greats of the, you know, the 60s, which was kind of my favorite decade of music, I would say, in a lot of ways. But I think I might be the odd one out that pursued music. What was, what was your first experience with the recording? Was this some, on your own, or were you somebody else recording you, or what? Yeah, that's actually a really great question. Um, when it was time to go to uh, decide if I was going to go to school for, um, I guess, what uh, direction in music I would go to, um, I was auditioning for you know, the, the bigger conservatories you know, of their time, and I had to record audition tapes. And... My family didn't necessarily have the budget to put me in a studio to record them, so my dad thought it would be really interesting if he purchased me a an affordable Korg digital 16-track recorder. I don't remember the exact brand of it, but it was a digital 16-track Korg. And, you know, it had basics. It had knobs that were compressor knobs, and it, it, sounded, it sounded like, it sounded terrible. But it got my head around the idea of multi-tracking. So what I would do would be find instrumental um, chord changes that were already kind of royalty-free recorded 
and then I would um, find the progressions that I was down with and then solo saxophone over it. And then I kind of stumbled upon uh, the effects section, which was really cool. So I started putting random delays and uh, reverbs and choruses on my saxophone. I was like, oh, I've never heard a saxophone sound like that before. And just start messing with it and, and thought it was cool, but never thought too much of it that I wanted it to be a career at all. Then wound up at the Hart School of Music at the University of Hartford in Connecticut, um, studying, oddly enough, classical saxophone, which seems an oxymoron uh, at this point in my life, and studying music education because I thought I would be a conductor um, or an educator of some sort because I was really inspired by my high school band director and I thought I could maybe give back to kids that way. And then in order to survive at school, I got a work-study job, which wound up being in the recording studio of the school, which would record all of the classical and jazz performances in the four halls that uh, existed, and we would edit them together to release um, on CD and on their website, which was fascinating to me. It was my first time I saw Pro Tools, and I started cutting things up and manipulating audio in uh, you know, seemingly unique ways to me at the time, and thought, oh wow, I should do this for a living, and called my parents and brought it up to them, and, and um, obviously they were not uh, a fan of me dropping out of school, and after a really long conversation over, I think it was like a holiday break, they allowed me to do that, uh, and then the story continues with me setting up a recording studio. Well, that's really interesting. You know, for me, when I started out, there was no entry level. There was only... Mm-hmm. Ampex and big consoles, or not even consoles at that point. So yeah, uh, there's a lot more opportunity these days for people to get their foot in the door at, at a really minimal cost. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember that that uh, recorder probably cost only, I mean, only at the time it felt like a lot of money to me. But I think it was like four or five hundred dollars, and you could, you know, with very low quality, you can at least capture something and manipulate it, which I think is the most important part of what we do. I mean, there's a lot of purity involved to the capture of audio, but that's not always the job. A lot of the times it's how you manipulate it and how you make it current and modern sounding, which is you know, kind of where that knowledge comes into play. Like first time I recorded it was not, make this sound as good as possible. It was like, I know this can't sound that good, so let's just get the job done, figure out how to make it sound the best possible that I could get it. You know, back when I started out, it was all, what could you do with the tape? <laughs> you got to go yeah. in there with an exacto knife and start yep. editing parts out. <laughs> yep. And or, running at different speeds and running it backwards and splicing stuff together different ways. Actually making a real flange effect. Real flange effect with two tape machines. That's with right. two tape machines. Now yep. I can now I can pull up uh, the uh, Valhalla Uber mod and there's, you know, 18 great flanger presets all within two seconds of each other. <laughs> I did wind up getting a internship right away at one of the bigger um, studios on Long Island where I'm from that my mom had a friend that linked us. So I did get into a studio with SSL and Neve consoles very quickly after that. So was able to understand the recording studio atmosphere at a pretty young age. I think I got really lucky with that. I was taken under the wing of the owner uh, of the studio. It was Cove City Sound Studios, and the owner of the studio was uh, Richie Kanata, who was the saxophone player of Billy Joel at the time. And he, I guess, took a liking to me because I was also a saxophone player. But 
out of the three or four interns that were there, for some reason, he never asked me to take out the garbage or go pick up food for anybody. He was always like, you, you should go in the room. You should just sit behind whoever the engineer was for the day. Don't ask too many questions, if any. Keep your mouth shut, but you should sit in there. Uh, I, I think he, he maybe saw something um, in me and always wanted me in the room, which was, I mean, now looking back, like that, that was an unparalleled luck to have the ability to watch people mix and record records uh, every day at such yeah, an early that, age. That's a great opportunity, really. Yeah. This is a kind of a current question. Is, do you have a loudness goal in mind when you're mixing? Uh, I actually do. I just got the um, TC Electronics Clarity M meter, which has been, been helping this kind of in real time see it in front of me. But I have actually talked to my mastering um, guy, Dale Becker, about this a ton because he gets so many things that are mixed at like minus six um, LUFS and it's just way too loud and I'll get rough mixes at that. And I've been really, really shooting for a minus nine, minus 10 kind of peak LUFS and I haven't had any non-approvals for any loudness issue. So I guess I must be doing something right, re-injecting dynamics into the mix. So I think minus nine, anything below that gets a little hairy when it translates to Spotify, just because competition wise with people that are uh, super dense in the high end, like I don't, I don't mix very dense in the high end. I think I mix with um, enough high end to compete, but more dense in the music, uh, in the low mid and low end frequencies, mostly low mid so we can get like chord value and music. Um, and I think that impacts the LUFS a lot. Um, so minus nine, minus 10. Lowest, probably. Uh, on, a, on, a, on a bad day, probably minus eight, if I really have to compete with a rough mix that I think has vibe really locked into it. Uh, and I'll probably go, I don't think any higher than minus eight in the past couple of years. You know, I'm reminded that the loudness wars began the day the, the limiter was invented <laughs> in, the, in the 1930s. And it's not a new thing. Uh, we have tools for making stuff just painfully loud now that we never had before, but the concept has been around forever. And that, on the one hand, is discouraging because we haven't learned anything in 80 years of uh, having that tool available in one form or another. But the normalization of loudness in the streaming services, I, I think, is going to put an end to that. And people are going to have to, they're going to find that their overly compressed mixes sound tiny. And when they uh, mix to a, to a level that's compatible with the, the services recommendations, then things sound great. Yeah, that is a great point. I've actually never thought about that. I'm going to probably spend the rest of the day thinking about what you just said. Um, but I'll add that we're not mixing for SoundCloud MP3 quality audio any anymore. We're mixing in perpetuity as bandwidth you know, internet bandwidth gets gets faster and faster. You know, we already are streaming 4K video on Netflix. At some point, we're most likely going to stream lossless quality audio on all services. I mean, Tidal's doing it, and Tidal sounds fantastic, but we're not mixing for radio anymore. Uh, radio is determined, yes, still by labels paying radio to play songs, but by what's streaming really well. So these standards are changing where I think the loudness and dynamics and, and everything that we have to offer as engineers is, is going to be 
you know, really shining. So if your mixes are compressed and tiny, you're going to know it versus on the radio, you don't know it. On SoundCloud, you don't know it. And on Spotify, you're starting to know it, um, but you don't really know it. So sooner than later, there's going to be a big gap uh, in people that actually can mix records and people that are going to have to kind of go study a little bit more and learn what a limiter actually does. You know, in recording, we have there's so many different aspects of it. I mean, people that aren't involved in it don't really realize that there's a whole palette of skills you need to do this well. So I'm thinking just mm. a few of them will be, you know, the recording process, miking, mixing, producing, being the psychologist in the room with the <laughs> artist. Um, what you know? How do you feel about it? those different aspects of it. you have a favorite of those or one you'd really don't like doing um i like them all i like them all in different capacities uh i'll start with recording um i love recording live music in a space that sounds good so and with and with good players um so i do not like recording just a vocalist over an instrumental track that happens very regularly in the pop music scene that I am in. I will do that if I am producing the song and it needs to be done, but that is not where I think my forte uh, lies. But setting up a few mics and capturing a space and a performance in a space uh, is one of my biggest passions. Um, So selecting mics for that purpose, I've recently, as you know, and we've discussed prior, uh, I'm very much into using ribbon mics um, and tube preamps, which I have very many of, thanks to uh, to the likes of you and your team. But I I do really love that. It just doesn't seem to be where I exist mostly. Um, I was actually thinking about it today as I was setting up this microphone for this purpose. I haven't really set up a microphone to record in a few months. Granted, I had uh, a pretty severe uh, injury occur where I was down for a bit, but then post that, I was, I've been mixing for two months straight, like every day, and uh, which I'm so thankful for. But the psychologist in the room part is actually probably my favorite because I really love dissecting uh, and getting to the nitty gritty into where people's intentions are really coming from. And they seem to be comfortable enough around me to at some point in the session, let that out. So that to me is the biggest privilege of what I get to do and the most impactful because if done well, um, you'll get the best out of the artist in that circumstance and in that session. So hopefully it will translate to the world and to the listeners. So that's my favorite part because I struggle with what we do as audio engineers and producers that actually impact the world more than just, you know, making music, which I know isn't as simple as just, oh, it's just making music, but it's hard to feel uh, purposeful when your job is so replaceable in a lot of ways because there's thousands of, especially in Los Angeles, there are, you know, hundreds and thousands of people that have talent that if you're not available for the gig, will will get the gig and, and do it adequately, if not more than adequately. So that where I think that the the purpose is found is you know helping the artist really translate their thoughts and their emotions into a product that will stand the test of time and 
that's the most important role, I think. Uh, well, moving on to a completely different topic, when you start a, a project from scratch, do you envision the final product in your mind and then just keep working towards that goal, or do you let it evolve, or you know, is, is it just dependent on the situation? It is dependent on the situation, but I talk about this pretty regularly um, because intention seems to be the most distinguishing part of being a professional, I think. The ability to understand reference points and the intention of the artist uh, and have the ability to, within a certain amount of time, because deadline dependent, you might not have a lot of time, get it over the finish line at the highest quality uh, possible. So I have to give a little credit to the PMC speaker team because I have recently upgraded my speakers um, to this MB3 active model. And the thing that I keep saying when people ask how I feel about these speakers is that they get me to my end goal much faster. So the investment in that that listening environment is making me realize the intention of the artist, then realize my own intention and getting it done pretty quickly. I probably would say that 90% of the time I hear where I want it to be before I touch it. And part, part of that experience is listening to it, say in uh, Apple AirPods and walking around my block um, for the first three or four listens of the song to really understand what it's like in the real world before hearing it on such a hi-fi um, reference system. This way, I can kind of understand how the other, other people are going to digest it and get it there. When you're um, setting up for a mix, whether it's your own project from scratch or something you're handed, do you have a process, a, a, a set way of going about setting that up, exploring it and figuring it out? Yeah. Uh, well, first off, I have two assistants that do the um, the prepping part. So ideally, um, and it happens most of the time, sometimes it's just not on them for how, how loud something was and I don't want them to recreate it. But ideally, the session, whether it stems or a Pro Tools session delivered to us, comes back uh, sounding exactly like the last listened to rough mix. Uh, and when I say listened to, I mean by the A&R, by the manager, by the artist, by the producer, by the sister, by the brother, by the mom, dad, everybody involved that said, yes, this is the magic. This is the one. Let's get John to just take it that last 5% uh, and finish it off. So when Josh or Ingmar, you know, are setting this up, I'm coming in at that place. Every once in a while I go guys, I don't actually care about that rough mix. I don't think that rough mix sounds good. So just kind of put the stems in, get my template in, get it colored and make it look nice for me. I'm just going to mix it, which I would say is few and far between uh, because people have their vibe injected into their rough mix most of the time. And, and at the level I'm working at, it's by great producers. So there's no need to really uh, recreate it. But every once in a while, I get to have a lot of fun and kind of do a faders down mix of it. But the process involved starts there and then, and as that's happening, I'm probably walking around going to grab an espresso and listening on my AirPods to that rough mix and really understanding the intention of the producer and artist. Yeah, and this is a very broad question. I don't think it's a specific answer. I'm just more interested in your thoughts on this. There's times when 
your process has to be fixing things, and there's other times when it's enhancing things. And mm-hmm. what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, part of my eighty twenty rule is that, and I think this just shifted in the past two three years where you spend the early parts of your career working on 80% things that you need to do for survival and probably 20% of things that you feel passionately about um, and really putting your whole into. And now I've kind of flipped it and it feels really good, to be honest. Um, and I'm working on 80% of things that I really, 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 really feel passionately about and 20% are kind of, you know, I should probably take that gig for whatever, for whatever reason. So in that 80%, there's a lot less fixing because the producers are at a similar place in their careers and the artist is too. And, you know, besides random clicks and pops on bad edits, uh, there's less fixing. But very specifically, I would say that the the biggest culprit for having to fix is the uh, bad vocal recording. It's pretty consistent. I would say it's more than 50% of the time the vocal does not sound what would be have been accept, uh, acceptable in the 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe up to the 80s, 90s, uh, you know, requirements for a passing vocal sound. It's so there's a lot of fixing there. But what I do, and I have a, you know, something that kind of involves you and your and your creations and how to fix this is where I, I wind up doing um, pretty bold reduction EQs in whether it be boominess from bad mic placement or harshness in cheap capsule sound on a microphone that, you know, you're on a budget and you you have to get your ideas down in your bedroom and the fire alarm's going off and you don't know how to, you know, get rid of the fire alarm. You can just replace the batteries, but, you know, that's that's a that's a thing. But I do really broad reductions in harsh harmonic frequencies. And then I recreate that area pretty broadly with the Hazelrig VLC-1 that um, is uh, your mastermind creation as well. It, it really rebuilds the even order harmonics of sounds after doing big reductions. So I remember doing something, I think it was on Macklemore's vocal he reco- it was recorded really really bright and and Ben really likes his vocal bright but and that's fine but I wanted to I want to do it in a, a bit of a more tolerable way so I actually remember taking a, a linear phase fab filter pro q and doing a reduction from 6 or 7k shelf down like maybe 20 db like pretty substantial dip and then taking the high boost on the VLC1 and cranking it and it was a remakeup of the information that was there just in a better way. And I thought, wow, this is kind of magical that you can replace harmonics with a better version of those same harmonics with a box that has the precision and, you know, audiophile clarity, you know, that your tube gear has. So that's really influenced my ability to fix and feel confident in not saying, hey guys, you need to re-record that vocal because that's never going to go over well because for two reasons. One, the song might be coming out tomorrow. Two, uh, the vibe is there and you don't, you, you're never going to get that performance back again. So that's the only time I'm really, really fixing. Uh, another example would be out-of-phase kicks and 808s or just out of phase drums in general. It's the first thing I look for before I even pull out an EQ or a saturation tool or anything. I I look, are the kicks in phase? Are the snares in phase? 
it's my first thing I actually do in a mix in general, I think, uh, almost every time. You know, speaking of uh, vocals that you have have to do some repair work on, do, are you getting things that have come in already with processing on them? Or are, they, are people mostly sending you stuff that's just the dry vocal? Uh, it, it's, it's a combination, but I would say when I get the wet or the processed and the dry separate, the process is usually so much further than the, um, the, the raw vocal that there's literally no way I could remake the vibe on the raw vocal that I just wind up using the processed one because I'll never get the mix across the line if I start from scratch on it because they did ridiculous amounts of art, like waves, art, compressor, whatever people do with that plugin, like, and, and our Vox and all that stuff that I, I really don't mess with at all. I'm not going to be able to recreate it. So I just use the process a lot of the time, especially if it's a really loud, dense pop or R&B track. If it's a more dynamic organic track i will always use the raw uh vocal and you know do my own thing to it but when things are dense and already kind of caked in with vibe i just kind of use the processed uh, and it, it when possible though i will not use a processed uh, affected vocal with their reverb and delay unless it's a deadline issue where they're like this is all we got we got an acapella and it's coming out in a day so this is what you got which is very rare that that occurs you know you're relatively young but still there's been a lot of technology changes, I'm sure, throughout your career. And mm. how do you see that as changing the way you work? Mm. That's a great question. Um, I was very fortunate to spend five years being mentored by Tony Maserati. And Tony, the best at staying current. He is always keeping younger engineers around him that show him the most current tool to use. He'll decide if and how he wants to use it. And he might use it in a completely different way than an 18-year-old Ableton producer is using it, but he'll still use the tool. Um, and he showed me that in order to stay current, you have to know what the youngest music makers are, are using. And where we both kind of agree past that is understanding certain standards and um, respecting the gear and art that existed before this new technology. So he has a hybrid system where he's, um, you know, part analog and part digital. And, and it's all dependent on the song that calls for being in the box or out of the box or using a hardware compressor on the vocal or just using a plug-in. Uh, what's the um, turnaround time? Is the artist going to be in the room? Is it going to be attended uh, with the producer? How, you know, there's so many variables involved into when to use which workflow. But if you're working on seven songs in a day, and I don't mean you're mixing seven songs in a day, I mean you're doing tweaks on a few, maybe mixing two songs in a day, recording a vocal on one, and you have this recall ability to just do it in the box with the newest technology possible and it be there saved so it sounds exactly the same the next day when you go listen to it to try to work on it again. I don't think anybody can argue with that, with that flexibility. So, and you know, this day and age, there's the converters are so great and uh, microphones are, are great. Uh, I don't see any issue uh, adapting with the times. That being said, uh, I think that Going, calling yourself a mix engineer and not knowing the difference between an attack and release on a 
Pro C2 from FabFilter versus an 1176 classic model compressor, I, I don't. I don't really stand for that. I think you should understand both sets of tools if you want to um, actually call yourself a professional mix engineer. So I think that's where Tony and I saw eye to eye and, um, you know, had a respect. And then, you know, in turn, he decided to coach me and, and, and train me because, because of that. Um, there's, like, there's a story of the first time I ever really worked with him on a mix was... A, a Lady Gaga song called Marry the Night that the vocal the vocal was recorded on a tour bus and it sounded terrible. There was nothing above 5K and a, a, a hum from the tour bus at 60 hertz and he was working on it and getting really, really frustrated and he wound up kind of getting really frustrated. I'm going out to smoke a cigarette. Like, you, you fucking fix this. Or, you know, whatever he said. And I remember he had just gotten a, a retro state level compressor in the rack that that morning uh installed by his assistant and i was like oh i've never seen that before let's see what that does and i you know he had it on an insert i think 20 uh 26 or 16 i forget which number it was at the time and i remember putting it on and then turning the input knob all the way up till the needle was pinned and it oversaturating and distorting and kind of faked those upper harmonics that didn't exist and then he came in the room and he's like oh what did you do and he like looked at the needle and he saw the needle pumping. And he was like, huh, that's cool. I don't think I'd ever do that. And, uh, you know, and that vocal, I'm, I don't think he did much more to it. And it wound up like kind of being the sound of that vocal. And that was like a kind of respect thing where, you know, that was an intense, bold move on that piece of gear that was done by a kid that had never seen a piece of gear. But if I was using a plug-in, I would have just turned the knob up all the way. That's kind of what I do anyway. I kind of just try to break things apart uh, and then put them back together. But sometimes uh, visually in a plug-in, if you're breaking something apart and putting it back together, you have this visual thing in your mind like, oh, why am I boosting something so high or overdriving something so much? But when you have a knob to turn and you're not looking at a screen the entire time, you wind up doing more bold moves. So I think there is a hybrid thought process to the two, and I'm kind of still working that out. Uh, actually, daily, I was talking about this yesterday with a friend, because the visual element of modern uh, music making can definitely mess with your psyche. And if you're going too far on something, even though that has, it's just a GUI, it has nothing to do with anything. So yeah, that's you know that's an interesting point because even back in the days when I started recording with you know, big analog consoles and tape machines, multi-track tape machines, I always found watching the meters was distracting me from the mm. music, from listening. And mm -hmm. I find that's even more so now when you have a GUI in front of you with all kinds of stuff going on, all kinds of things you can play with. And uh, I just wonder if you find the same thing, that sometimes all that visual information just gets in the way of listening to what's going on. Yep. I actually have um, a trick where I have a hot corner for a screensaver that has a visualizer that after I make almost any move, um, I put the screensaver on and I don't look at Pro Tools. Almost every move. It gets a little obsessive, to be honest, but no one's ever complained, so I'm going to keep doing it. Actually, recent, uh, on Halloween two nights ago, I was playing old Hitchcock movies uh, on my TV and on my computer screen. Uh, and I thought, oh, that would be kind of cool, like playing a black and white Hitchcock film 
instead or some other visual stimulant that has nothing to do with music or with uh, with metering, with anything, because it is so distracting. Like, say you're doing um, a, a fade and you're doing it digitally in the box and you're staring at that fade. Your brain is already biased towards if that fade is correct just by the way the slant looks but the slant has nothing to do with how the fade is actually reacting in pro tools so that's one example i mean if you're doing an eight bar loop and you're looping a section and it's the same section but just because you duplicated it you might think there's something different about the groove in the second time even though it's actually duplicated it's the same exact thing there's so many psychological twists that occur by looking but at the same time I would never forfeit the ability to edit syllables and bad recording and bad edits and drums on the grid and phasing without seeing it on Pro Tools like I don't want to go back to the 60s and have to record on tape like I just don't Uh, to me that's completely irrelevant even to uh, you know unless you're doing a whole project that is of the time on that medium for the sole purpose of it being that i i would totally down to do that but for anything modern i I, man that's just sounds like a big headache yeah absolutely i mean that that was most of my career and uh i don't want to go back to that i I really (laughs) don't (laughs) that's funny you know we have we have tools now they're so much better and it's just you know our lives are so much simpler there's no undo button on a tape machine you know if you if you make a mistake it's done there's no way to get it back um so yeah i i i mean there's people my age uh and and younger and that would they're going to listen to this and be really mad at you for saying that and me because they want to go back to the legacy days uh and go to capitol studios and and use a tape machine and like that's cool put that stuff into pro tools like really quick so you can see if your drums are out of phase because you're going to keep boosting 60 hertz on a kick out mic but all you have to do is flip the phase on the kick out mic and you had your 60 hertz and by doing that you're occupying so much space that is fighting against loudness by boosting all that low end information that is going to make your vocals sound compressed at the mix bus stage like th- these are things that nobody i don't want to say nobody that is way too bold but that a lot of people don't think about when they're asking for the vocal up it's like well how much low end information do you want and our job is to get those balances right and part of recording on a modern medium is to be able to see those problems and get us there quicker. Yeah, no, I agree completely. But you know what I run into, and maybe you can give some advice to people that are just getting started in this. I run into people who focus on the visual aspect of the music rather than listening to it to the extent that to them, that you know, they practically don't even need the monitors turned on. And that's just so bizarre to me. And uh, I think you give a good example of, of why that's not really a good approach. <laughs> that's really funny. Uh, I was just uh, asked about my feelings on the, um, the Surfer EQ. As I think it is a very smart invention, and I, will, uh, I have demoed it, and I probably will get it and use it. Um, I have a hard time with this algorithmic uh, assessment of frequencies 
Um, for example, I heard that someone uses it on an 808 uh, bass drum where for every peak, it reduces the peak accordingly. And, you know, it, uh, in correspondence to the key, you, you, you insert the key and then as the bass notes move up, the, the reduction point, you know, changes uh, in effect. And where my head and heart goes with that is why are you perfectly reducing those overtones? Music was made with 808s and kick drums for so long without that, that I think that makes the unrefined sound of an 808 have its authenticity and its, you know, agitation and, and, and energy that if you're taking out all of its, you know, upper harmonics or quote unquote bad harmonics, the way it interacts with the the punchy kick drum on top of it is going to change. Uh, the way it reacts with a piano or a sample is going to change and make it sound a bit too pure. So I, I think that is a more broad, that's a, a really specific example of a more broad issue that I'm having with these kind of smart EQ scenarios where I think that the reason you hire a craftsman mix engineer to work on your song is to leave in some of the mystery, uh, the mystery and, and the mysterious frequencies that are quote unquote bad harmonics, because that's what gives um, intensity and tension and release and all the things that make music human rather than sterilized, you know, maybe background music, uh, experiential uh, dancing you know, I don't know where to go with that exactly, but there is a lot of sterile music being made uh, purely with the way you're speaking of, um, where it's mostly visual, if not fully visual. And I'm trying to, you know, remain an artisan and, and, and you know, trust my gut and my emotional reaction to the music. But using modern tools. For me, I'll always go with the imperfect performance if, the, if it has the feel. And I think a lot of people are just obsessed with getting everything perfect. And if you go back to a lot of those classic records that we all love and listen to the individual tracks, there's a lot of bad stuff going on there that just doesn't really matter. I, I know the, uh, the PMCs don't lie. Uh, you can hear all the faults in, all, in a lot of early music that... Like, oh wow, they left that. You know, and the, those things kind of jump out at at me on these speakers, and uh, those are those are really conversational moments. You're like, oh wow, that's that's something I don't I don't hear in micromanaged um, pop music these days, and I, I think there is uh, there's a want for that. There's a uh, a starvation for that imperfection in in, in still produced and um, tight concise pop songs and arrangements. Uh, I just think we're lacking that. And I think these new modern tools are, are, are taking us a step away from that, that feel or some of the tools that, that I'm talking about with those uh, smart EQs. Because the performance factor is kind of the same thing. You, you need imperfections in performance and capture of sound in order for it to sound and, and feel real. Getting back to the recording studio, when you're doing a project from scratch or even just doing overdubs on it. How do you go about choosing the mics? I mean, what do you look for? And I, I know you and I are both fans of ribbon mics. I mean, I've done sessions where a lot of them really, that it's just all ribbon mics. But tell me about how you go about choosing the mics you, you want to use. Yeah, uh, the last 
the last two years, I think have been exclusively ribbon mics at my new studio, uh, the gift shop in downtown LA. We have this beautiful wood uh, uh, hanger ceiling. And um, I do have two DPA Omni condenser mics that are, you know, really fantastic at miking uh, space uh, for sure. Uh, they are up um, but other than that it's usually exclusively ribbon mics and maybe on a vocal I'll use my C12 but I've been using AA R44 and um, R88s on almost everything and uh, KU4 and you know they're pretty much their entire arsenal I'm, I'm super into I really am looking for the going back to the early days of recording where the design of the equipment was done in order to capture the purity of the sound source having the ability in the box to manipulate to our heart's content i want to have the the closest to the true sound source possible and then most likely those sounds will not remain as pure but i have all the harmonic content of it to you know, to mess around with. And I think that's the opposite of what people are doing today. We're like, oh, I just want to record with some vibe and I want it to, you know, like a bunch of pedals and a bunch of whatever and 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 capture the sound as is, which is also great. And, and, and really um, and the, having the ability and the confidence to commit to tones right away is really great. But uh, I'm just taking a different approach and it's I think it's my own approach. And I don't think it's better or worse than that, but I love using digital tools in the box to manipulate really great recorded um, material. Well, you know, that's one thing I've always said, that the uh, if you don't capture it right, you're, you're already at a disadvantage, and using the right mic and the right preamp can make your life so much easier. <laughs> so much easier. I try to tell my friends that all the time. Because uh, I'm at a unique stage in the mix process with like a lot of different producer friends, and Oh, and they asked me, oh, like, you know, what did you have to do to this vocal? And every once in a while I go, man, not that much. Put my VLC on it, put a little 1176 compressor on it, or a Fairchild, uh, you know, UAD, little reduction with Pro-Q2, like really simple things. And everyone, the other times I have to go, man, it was a lot of work. Um, like, I think it would behoove you to invest in a great, you know, vocal chain, uh, and then start going into why I love ribbon mics and why I love... Um, to preamps and I can go into that briefly now I, I think it's I think um condenser mics were created while recording to tape because you were getting uh at, at the time of uh you know tape recording because you were getting a lot of that saturation uh and tape compression that was dulling up that so you wanted um dulling up the high end so you wanted that condenser sound to cut through but now that we're already in digital mediums with these high-end converters, we don't really need a condenser mic to cut through. We can just boost top end, you know, on a ribbon mic. So you're getting that fast transient uh, ribbon response. The only issue, though, is you, if you put up a ribbon mic right next to a, you know, U47 or a C12 or a Sony C800, it's most likely not going to compete in its raw form. So you have to do more work to it. That's okay because you get a compressor, uh, a compressor. You get an EQ and a preamp that you like, and you set that setting so it makes up for that excitement energy that you're missing from the Sony C800, but just with a beautiful Pultec passive EQ sound, right? And it's all it's competing, but it's more realistic and it's faster and it's crisper and it doesn't fatigue you when you turn it up, but it still sounds pop and exciting. So I think it's a step 
there's one extra step to get it there, but you have more flexibility after the fact using ribbon mics and two preamps versus solid state. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable to me that something like the 44, you know, designed in 1930, which was the best best quality microphone available at the time. I mean, just far outshone anything else that was available at that time is still a totally viable and wonderful microphone even today. It's incredible. I I use it all the time. Yeah, me too. All the time. I I use it as a mono drum room uh, down by my kick, about three feet out, and I don't have to add a kick sample three feet away, and it sounds punchy. Granted, my room is kind of Motown, tight and small, but I just... I, I don't ever put a kick drum mic on, and that's the only mic, and the kick sounds punchy. It's great. Is there anything that you want to talk about that we didn't cover that you feel is important? I, I actually, I do. Uh, the one thing I wanted to bring up, and it's, uh, we, we didn't really get into, which I didn't want to do, uh, get into like kind of geeky tech, technical things, um, but I wanted to talk a, a bit more about an approach that I have that I think is different when it comes to mixing. And I know we did talk about process earlier on, but a pretty specific thing, which I I also want your feedback on because you're a big part of it is my affinity and infatuation with uh, saturation and why that is the go-to go-to tool uh, for me, rather than a compressor limiter or an EQ right off the bat. And I mean all different kinds of saturation. I don't mean using the same box for everything. Granted, as uh, the listeners might not know, I have a DW Fern VT7 on my mix bus uh, at all times. I believe it's 100% of the last mixes in the past like two years. Uh, that already is doing a, you know, a, a, nice, uh, a nice saturation thing. But in the box, we have so many profound tools for modern and vintage uh, saturation. And I think where a lot of modern music lacks is its musical content. I think we all know how to make drums hit hard and vocals to sound overcompressed and high energy and exciting. But where I find a lot of mixes lack, I don't know if it's bad monitoring or laziness, not caring about chords, but chords are always lacking to me and not only to me it's to other you know peers and collaborators that I work with um I'm always kind of trying to balance uh if you think visually about the left and the right hand of a piano player you know the right hand being melody most of the time and the left hand being the foundational chordal music and bass notes and kind of bringing that left hand up the right hand is really easy to keep up in the foreground but at the same time, not getting rid of impact. So saturation is uh, my friend in that. And I do it in all certain ways. I'll use exciters and I'll do different style modeling of saturation. And most people ask me what compressors I use and what EQs I use. And I don't have a good answer for that. I always struggle to answer what compressor I use on whether it be vocals or whatever. I'm kind of like exhausted by compressors. I mean, we have clip gain in Pro Tools to level out vocals. You know, compressors should be used as any other effect. They should be used as an effect. If recorded properly, you can balance a vocal without using one uh, heavy-handedly unless that's what you're going for and you're going for like a rock and roll, like punk, exciting fucking vocal thing, you know. But the use of saturation is coming into the conversation more. And it's funny because like, that was 
probably all that was happening in early days of recording. You were pushing tubes, you were pushing tape, and you got that desired glowing sound, which was known as saturation. And as we were talking earlier about needles moving and meters moving and how distracting it is, like you wanted to pin a console, you wanted to pin a tape machine because you wanted that transformer saturation, you wanted the tape saturation, you wanted tubes to peak. And I, I, I always think about a tube this way, and I could be wrong, so please chime in here. But when I think about a transistor, I think about a solid state circuit, I see this tiny little piece of metal with a transistor on it, and the sound has to go squeezed through that. So you can only maybe get a certain size sound out of that. But when you have a tube, the tube is glowing and it's expanding. And as it's getting hit harder, it, it blossoms and seemingly the sound is getting bigger and bigger. It's very, very obvious on a DI base, um, on like a, a, a VT1 or a VLC1. And it just seems to get bigger and bigger. So when I have the VT7 on my mix bus, if a client's like, and this is actually really rare because I mix bass drums really loud, but hey, can you turn the kick up? I don't feel weird about, I don't feel not, less confident in the ability to turn that up, even if I have my gain staging right, because I know that it's just gonna hit that wall a little harder and it might squeeze a bit, but it's gonna still be punchy and big because of saturation, there's a bit of a safety net going on. And I think that's, you know, there are certain saturation plugins and boxes that will stunt transients, but we also have modern tools that are transient shapers that you can rebuild transients post-saturation. So if I were to divulge any secret, this would be the only one that I think is really worthy of sharing, which is don't be afraid to oversaturate things, but make sure you make up for transient loss after it. Uh, especially with plug-in saturators. So I just want to kind of shift people's brains on looking for the, the best compressor, limiter, and EQ before thinking about how balanced the harmonics are. Um, and we have a lot of new tools. Uh, Isotope, for example, is, oh man, they're, they're killing it right now with saturation and with, you know, dynamic EQs and, and, and things that are a little bit more, more modern. And I think that's where my head's at, where I'm sure the second wave dudes are getting into that, but I don't notice it as much. I don't notice the chords, you know, evoking emo the, the emotional intention that the piano player had on a lot, of, a lot of modern mixes. I just hear drums and vocal. And I love drums and I love vocal, but also love music. So I'm trying to figure out how to balance all of it in a fresh way. You know, if you look back in the history of recorded music, you had stuff back and going way back before even before tape where things were recorded to disc and the the you know that that was 10 20% distortion on that stuff <laughs> right and and it and it but it sounds great i mean and i think it's because it's mostly even order harmonic distortion and not the the raucous kind of distortion that you run into with a a solid state overload um, yeah, you really need really need tubes to do that. You know, even the optical soundtracks of old movies, very restricted in dynamic range, frequency response, real high distortion, mm -hmm. but they sound great. Um, you know, if you don't analyze it for its technical quality, but just your emotional reaction to it, they really captured sound great back then. And you look at the like the 45s from the 50s that were 
you know, you, you could turn the volume down, just hear the, the stylus on the turntable mm. making enough noise that you could listen to the music, you know, you could hear it. Uh, those things were just so overdriven, and uh, it, it's just a sound that just grabs your attention. You, you know, you can be in a store, and it comes on the store speaker, and it's just like you got to stop and listen to it. It's just compelling. So I think yeah. you're on to something there because that is – you know, connects with some human emotion somehow. Yeah, there's a, the, the word that comes to mind is there's a tangibility factor to it. Like you can reach in and, and touch the instrument and you can, you can put yourself in the room um, having that dynamic range. It might sound crunchy. I don't even want to say crunchy because you can still do it cleanly. I think you crunch when necessary, but the records you're talking about are crunchy and, 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 and actually audibly distorted. Um, and then I think that the, the, the newer way of doing that is to inject just enough, having um, plugins that have wet, dry, you know, knobs and sliders on them. Um, I'm, you know, only adding maybe 10, 20% of that affected signal. So it's there and it's, you know, psychologically, like you feel it, you, you could hear it, you kind of hear it, you know, something's different, but it's not the, it's not the foreground of the sound and you blend in these subtle amounts of that on certain instruments. Like, okay, maybe you'll leave the kick drum really clean uh, and the 808 really clean in the low end. So the low end sounds expansive and deep, but you're saturating upper harmonics in the piano. So you can uh, reduce the lower mids in the piano to get out of the way of the bass, but you're injecting like without an EQ, a subtle amount of that harmonic distortion, even on harmonics, as you mentioned, into the mid-range of the piano so that stacks up nice and you can want you can stack your your instrumentation and your arrangement without aggressively boosting eq this is also it's really hard to be nuanced about the language here because it's such a feel-based thing which is what they were doing on those old 45s you're talking about and it's very difficult to to put into words but I, I think I'm just onto something, and I, I wanted to uh, express it here and let people kind of ponder this idea, and maybe we could elaborate on this another time when I'm a little bit more down that road, because I think it's very important um, as dynamic range increases. I remember I have a playlist uh, with my one of my mentors and great friends, uh, Spider, who it was uh, exclusively 60s music from Africa, and if you put it on a great pair of speakers first of all it sounds great but it's it's quiet right you have to turn the the volume knob up a little bit but on the iphone on small devices everybody's like oh you got to mix for the iphone you got to mix for small devices that's how the majority of you know humans are consuming music which is 100 percent true and very important those records sound bigger on iphones than super squashed minus six to minus seven lufs mixes on iPhones because there's no transients. The transients are all sucked out. So it doesn't jump out of the phone at you. So when I send a mix back at minus nine, minus 10, it sounds huge on a on an iPhone and still competes on Spotify. So like, I don't, this loudness war thing just needs to go away. I think we would do really well with, with it just being gone. And we're on the road there with the normalization of um, streaming services, which is another whole conversation, but really exciting. But if you saturate and bring up the harmonic content and then re recreate transients uh, and limit less, I think music's going to start uh, pulling at those heartstrings again. Uh, I don't necessarily 
want to mix like somebody else. Um, and I think a lot of young mixers are in their state of their career, stage of their career where they are emulating. And I definitely did that for so many years, probably for the majority of the time. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But Tony, while training me, saw something unique and never wanted me to kind of just ghost mix for him and stay there. He always wanted me to have my own sound, which, you know, I can thank him for now, which I have probably like the other night when I saw him. But at the time I was like, man, I kind of could use you like giving me gigs, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, trying to survive in Los Angeles, but him pushing me kind of out into doing my own thing. I think I need to honor his, um, his intention there by doing something unique. And I think that this is a sound that I'm trying to create that within a few years, people will want that sound. And for example, I was able to do that on my most recent release, um, for Khalid's most recent EP, which I mixed with my friend, uh, Dennis Koziak, uh, where Khalid wanted kind of smoother R&B lush mixes. And I was able to kind of inject that, that kind of fuzzy saturation sound while keeping it, you know, like I said earlier, bright and poppy and competitive, but leaning more on the warm side. And for an artist of his level and, and reach in the marketplace that I, I would, I'm kind of hoping that people want that sound. Um, and as I get more clients um, and artists of that uh, caliber, I'd love to inject uh, a bit of that influence into, into music moving forward. You know, when I talk to young people coming up, because I'm asked to speak at, at some of the recording schools and other, other places like that, mm. and I always encourage people to develop your individual sound because if you just sound like everybody else, what's the point? <laughs> you know, yeah, you, what's you, the point? Yeah, you they're got, gonna, you they're gotta, gonna go to that guy. They're just gonna go to right. that guy. He's gonna right. do it better than you because that's his. That's right. So you, you definitely have to develop your own style. And it, you know, if I listen to the recordings I did, I hate to say this, but 50 years ago, <laughs> and compare them to things I'm doing today, some things have changed, like the equipment's changed and and uh, the, the caliber of the people I'm working with has changed. Mm -hmm. But the sound that I had back then is not all that different from the sound I strive for today. Yep. And for whatever reason, you know, I developed that style then and I just haven't found anything that fits me better. And I think that's an important part uh, point to make to people coming up is that you know, what you have to sell is, is your unique ability. hundred percent. It's, it's, uh, there's nothing, there's nothing more important than acknowledging that. And if you are lucky enough to have a mentor that can tell you that, or you're not lucky enough to have that experience where we have YouTube and we have, you know, the interwebs in general to seek out knowledge like you just dropped on us. So find find that uh, whatever validation you need to find in order to be the best version of you in, in every aspect of life. Uh, but, it, you know, we're talking specifically, um, you know, audio related in, in this portion of the interview, but in all aspects of life, just if you're you, man, you're going to get resonated with in some way. Yeah, yeah, So true. I really, really like that you just said that. That's kind of how I think on a daily basis. Yeah, and good point, too, about who we're mixing for because 
I mean, why does MP3 even exist anymore? I mean, the <laughs> bandwidth is available to <laughs> basically anybody to stream stuff in, in real high resolution. Doug, um, but, I don't know. <laughs> I don't oh, know. Well. I want to ask the questions that, that hopefully haven't really been explored enough yet, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and dig into these people's psyche a little bit and just figure out what makes them do what they do and how they got there and everything. Because, you know, so many interviews... I better stop the tape now. <laughs> no, keep going. Uh, so many interviews are... Uh, just sort of a recitation of projects they did and what mic they used and what Ugh, processing what they used. Yeah, and what yeah. plug-in. And uh, I hope you agree with me that all that stuff's really irrelevant. The, Completely. The core, th- the core thing is, is what makes you do what you do? And what, what are you aiming for and how do you get there? Not what tool you used. Uh, it's not about any tool. I mean, I always tell that I, I tell friends and and um, my two apprentices too. Like, if you put Tony in a room or you put me in a room and only gave us one compressor plug-in and one EQ, we can still make a record sound more than listenable. Uh, it doesn't matter what th- those tools are. I'm not sure it would be as good as if I had more tools, but it would be very much a listenable, balanced, energetic record. So I think those tools are are irrelevant. They're uh, preferred but not required i would say right any thoughts on where you might be five to ten years from now i mean what what are your career goals and what do you uh what would you like to have happen in your life wow doug that's a deep question (laughs) um i think about it daily i don't i'm not one to plan for the future which as i'm uh, entering my uh, 30s i'm 32 at the moment i think i'm supposed to think about those things more Career-wise, I want to be, I guess, what would be referred to in this industry as an A-list mix engineer. And that is very difficult because there is already a, um, a group of A-list mix engineers that are fantastic at what they do that I highly respect. I'm just getting a little bit exhausted of the same sound occupying the top of the charts in music, whether it be top 40 R&B or alternative and indie. Um, it seems to be a, a similar gamut of, um, of mixers. So I'd like to enter that um, within the next five years. I think I am very close to it. I'm, I'm sharing record credits with these, um, these people and I uh, have a, a bunch of my own as well, but I think I'd like to be a bit of a more go-to um, trusting mixer that has a, a slightly different approach to what I would refer to as the second wave group of engineers. Um, and again, I say that with much respect for their success and their craft as well. I just think there's some new perspective needed in this field, and I think I have it. I've been talking with mix engineer John Castelli. John and I may do more of this in the future, so if you have any questions or topics you would like to hear about, please let me know. You can tell me what you would like to hear on any topic. Your feedback is very helpful. This is my take on music recording. I'm Doug Fern. See you next time.